We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio today by David Green of the News Lens. Good evening, Gavin. And Lauren Dickey, a PhD student in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we discuss a US defence bill with Taiwan provisions, more news on air pollution woes, a recall vote for a popularly elected lawmaker, concerns that Taiwan's mainstream media is being controlled by China-backed companies, and we'll also be spacing out for a bit. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen describing passage of amendments to the Referendum Act as being a historic moment that ushers in a new era in which, in her words, the people of Taiwan are their own masters. Now, lawmakers voted to lower the thresholds for a referendum motion to be initiated and accepted and also for its results to be declared valid. There have been six national referendums since the Referendum Act was enacted in 2003, none of which, however, have met their 50% turnout threshold, rendering all the votes invalid and wasting quite a bit of taxpayers' money in the meantime. And under the new amendments, though, the results of a referendum will be declared legitimate if 25% of all eligible voters cast ballots and a majority of those vote in favour of the proposal. Other amendments included lowering the legal voting age for referendums from 20 to 18 and also to exclude referendums which call for changes to the country's constitution, its name, its national anthem, its flag or its territorial boundaries. Now a KMT motion to implement absentee voting for referendums was struck down while a proposal by the new power party to allow referendums to decide what issues should be discussed with Beijing was also dropped. So Lauren, new referendum laws, good thing, bad thing? I would say on the whole it's a good thing. Um, Taiwan's a democracy, right, and a very vibrant one at that. And so to have the ability to initiate a referendum um, and have a lower threshold at which point the referendum is considered valid I think is great because it really puts some more political power in the hands of the people, which is obviously what you want in a democracy. Um, I really think it reflects this intention to... um, preserve the political status quo of allowing Taiwanese people to decide their own future, whatever that may be, whether it's a domestic law or regarding Taiwan's place in the world. And so for me, at least, um, again, a net positive on the whole. Um, Yeah, I broadly agree with that. Um, I think it remains to be seen how uh, these amendments are put into practice, though, as we've seen elsewhere around the world, particularly in the UK, perhaps recently uh, with Brexit. Um, Sometimes direct democracy doesn't turn out so well and putting questions over to the people uh, it is sometimes not such a good idea. Um, obviously something needed to change uh, from the situation we had before with the, the, the birdcage uh, whereby all of those six, I think six previous referendums had failed. Um, but the lowering of the threshold, uh, we, we'll see how it's used. I mean, the KMT were pushing for 20%, obviously in their interest as the uh, opposition and minority party in government to have a way to challenge uh, the government's uh, majority and the rules that they put into place. So it, it really depends whether this uh, these amendments are sort of acted upon responsibly. And and so far, there are, that's that's a, that's a question that's open to debate. We'll have to wait and see how it's put into practice. Um, I think there is some other elements of the of the amendments, including the changes on a on a on a local level, local and city government level, that enable. Um, people to to put uh, questions to referendum on on local issues um i was speaking this week to uh the head of ubi taiwan who said that that's a great thing for for example for his organization because it enables him to uh 
put the question of having a UBI pilot to a, a, a county-level government, whereas previously the threshold was too, too high to even get that idea off the ground. So, yeah, as I said, broadly speaking, a good idea, but, but let's see how it pans out. Do you think there could be dangers that any crackpot group, we'll call them a crackpot group just to be random about it, could come up with an idea, put it forward, and because so few signatures are needed now, it could actually be voted on, therefore technically wasting a lot of taxpayers' money? So I think there are several issues within that. The one thing that uh, this this these amendments do now is that it allows um, signatures to be collected online, which also says that you can mobilize a lot more people a lot more quickly to get political traction for an issue that this so-called crackpot group that you've uh, used as our model, right, in this instance, could potentially use or exploit. Um, but I think that's where, again, you know, going back to how a democratic system functions, there are going to be checks and balances in the system. So even if a referendum were to pass on any issue that any group could advance, then it's still going to have to go through the implementation process that any other act of government in this country has to. Um, as we're going to discuss later, we've seen in New Taipei City, um perhaps uh, a crackpot group, or I, I would certainly view them as such, um, enabling the recall vote against uh, New Power Party chairman Huang Guochang. Um, so that's an instance where uh, we have seen this sort of special in interest groups able to hold, um, uh, hold to, to push these kind of these movements through, which may not necessarily be uh, a good thing. And we've seen it also in California where they have, they have terrible difficulty passing budgets sometimes because Special interest groups can 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 get hold of the media, for example, um, and also get hold of sufficient resources to influence the electorate. So, again, it, it remains to be seen how, how this pans out. Um, I think you are going to see sort of greater competition for um, voices in the media, and and we'll come and discuss that later as well. Uh, as long as you ensure that there is a vibrant uh, freedom of the press. That might not be so much of a problem. What about banning certain things from these referendums, though? Banning this, you can't vote on changes to the constitution. So the NPP, to my understanding, the New Power Party, rather, um, did actually try to get a motion through that would have allowed the Referendum Act amendments to cover amending the Constitution, if not writing an entirely new Constitution, and that was struck down. Um, and I think it's just saying that, you know, right now in the current political environment, that there are certain things that are not feasible, um, that there's not enough political appetite for or consensus across the board between the different parties and factions in Taiwan. And so I think, um, you know, saying that the, the referendum cannot touch symbols of, of a nation, right, its title, its territory, its flag, its anthem, I think this was, it actually represents some sort of a middle ground agreement between the parties, that yes, we can have referendums on other issues, but for now, we're not going to touch the more difficult issues of of identity um, and, and politics in that regard. And of course, they also lowered the voting age for referendums. Do you think this could be a a precursor to actually lowering the voting age for general elections? Um, we'll have to wait and see about that. I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think lowering the voting age in general uh, is, is a good idea um, to sort of stimulate more more participation among uh, the younger people in Taiwan. Um, there have been some, some concerns about that following the, the drop-off in uh, participation in democracy following the Sunflower Movement. So um, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, again, broadly a good thing. I mean, I, I would say also on the issue of constitutional questions um it raises the question if you're not going to be asking constitutional questions in a national referendum what kind of questions are you going to ask um and 
maybe two examples are questions on nuclear power and, and same-sex marriage, which actually the government is already pushing ahead. They already have a stance on that. So you could end up with a situation where government tries to kick the can back to um, the, the people in the sense of rather than try and show real leadership and follow through on things that they committed to and were elected uh, to enact through parliamentary democracy. So, again, I think it remains to be seen um, how these kind of changes are acted upon and it will require some responsibility from, from the politicians here. I just want to piggyback on the voting age, actually, because I think that lowering the voting age um, for other beyond the referendum, right? So you're bringing you're bringing the youth up to the 18 year olds on up into the referendum voting. But I would actually like to see that personally. I hope that this is a precursor, Gavin, as you asked, um, to lowering the voting age nationally for other elections. Because if you can get people, the Taiwanese youth, to care about voting in a referendum on same sex marriage, um, on the future of their country, whatever it may be, then I really think that it should be impetus to include them in the elections at a broader level, get them more active in at a lower age, at voting locally, um, as well as in the presidential elections too then. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was, I was going to say, if you, can, if you can vote on national issues in a referendum, why can't you vote in a, in a general Exactly, election? exactly. And there we shall leave that topic and move on to US President Donald Trump, who signed America's 2018 defence bill on Wednesday morning here in Taiwan of this week. And, of course, it came with several Taiwan-related provisions. The bill calls for a case-by-case review of arms sales requests to Taiwan and mandates their reporting to the Congress. It doesn't, however, require regularised arms sales, as some had hoped for. But it does call for invitations to Taiwan's military to take part in joint exercises and exchanges with Taiwan of military officers and senior officials. It also opens the possibility of US Navy vessels being able to make port calls in Taiwan. But that opened a whole new kettle of fish when a embassy member in Washington of the Chinese embassy decided to come out and basically say, and I'm paraphrasing, we will bomb Taiwan to oblivion if one US ship docks there. Well, happy times, eh? Anyway, but it's good news for Taiwan, Lauren? So... This is a huge issue and one that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, but let me start with the the language that's used in the NDAA. So there are two areas of text there for Taiwan. The first, as you mentioned, Gavin, strengthen defense partnership. And the second is to normalize the transfer of defense articles. Both of these sections begin with the phrasing, uh, it is the sense of Congress. So Congress is requesting the administration, it's requesting the Department of Defense um, and the State Department to explore the options for strengthening defense partnerships and normalizing uh, the transfer of defense articles or services to Taiwan. It does not, unlike other areas in the NDAA, actually have a uh, enforcement mechanism. So, for instance, there's a cyber clause. Uh, Congress has mandated that the, the, the administration explore cybersecurity and a new cyber strategy. And it has said elsewhere within the NDAA that if a strategy, once it is defined, it does not get reported to Congress, then Congress could choose to withhold funding from the White House Communications Agency. And Trump was very mad about this. So not to get into too much insider baseball or politics, but my point in in highlighting this is that for the Taiwan clauses, there's no enforcement mechanism or punishment mechanism as such. Um, So really going forward, the U.S. AIT here, State Department of Defense back in Washington, are going to be exploring what this actually means, right? So the port calls. Are the ports big enough for U.S. vessels to visit? Or would a U.S. vessel dock off of the coast of Taiwan and then ferry its people um, or logistics and, 
and resupplying back and forth? Would Taiwan be invited to participate in air-to-air combat exercises? Would a Taiwanese senior military official come to Washington for for dialogue with his counterpart? These are all questions that um, Washington and and Taiwan are going to have to sort through. Would you call it a bit wishy-washy then? I wouldn't call it wishy-washy. I guess I'm just pragmatic, and I think that it's going to take time for the legal counsel in Washington to figure out what the NDAA actually means. Um, and, and I guess I would just say that, you know, it's the sense of Congress that the administration should act this way, but it's going to have to fall to the administration to decide whether it will act this way. Well, I mean, I actually just have a question really about that, and it's really about the arms sales because I think the, the port visits caught much of the attention because of the saber rattling by China, which we've we've seen before. Um, but I, I think um, normalizing weapon sales and, and increasing weapon sales would be a bigger issue. Um, you said that it, it requires you know some working through, but do, do you think that that opens the door for the sort of return to, to major multi-billion dollar arms sales to Taiwan? So I think, I guess my answer to that would be that I think it, it, it makes it so that when Taiwan submits a letter of request to the United States, that the U.S. has to consider that as an individual letter, right? We're not in the era of bundling things together anymore, which I think is a really good thing. Um, if Taiwan wants something, if it feels that its defense needs and security environment merit whatever platform, then the U.S. is then held to a timeline for making that request happen. So that could actually be, I think you're right, a really interesting area to watch going forward is how this is Regular, regularized and normalized. Because that was always a problem before when they bundled them together because it took too long for Taiwan to get them. Exactly. It'd take a couple of years. Or even under Obama, if I remember correctly, there was a four-year hiatus where nothing was sold. They were just kind of waiting for the next package to get knitted together. What about the calls for more regularized arms sales? Because Rupert Hammond Chambers, the U.S. Taiwan Business Council, has been calling for this for years. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I think he's got the right idea because, again, and this is, I think it's what the NDAA is getting at. So... The U.S. can regularize it, but the Taiwanese side will actually have to say, you know, we have this this clause in the NDAA that we can use to our advantage. So we can be submitting letters of request more periodically, and we can make sure that our end of the deal is held up. Uh, just as the United States holds up its timeline, you know, the 120 days, I think it is, that the Secretary of Defense has to start to process um, and submit a report to Congress on the feasibility of, of a Taiwanese request. Well, is there concern in Washington about Taiwan's rather small defense budget? I think that's something that uh, legislators in Washington are still very much concerned about um, because it's a question of, of symbolic investment in the island's defense, right? If, if Taiwan, the argument goes, if Taiwan cannot maintain a defense budget at around 3%, then they argue, you know, how committed is Taiwan to its own defense? And I personally think that, yes, the budget matters. Um, Taiwan needs to be making reasonable requests within its own resource-constrained environment. But I think... More than that, how Taiwan defines its own security, what it's doing here on the ground, how it's training its forces, that also really matters a lot in terms of how we, the United States, should think about Taiwan and really evaluate its its own defense needs. Right, and of course, this week we had two former American Institute in Taiwan chairmen, those being Richard Bush and Douglas Powell, coming out and saying that the Trump administration is very unlikely to allow port calls here. 
Um, I mean, I don't really have a, a read on that. I mean, I, I was going to say that, that perhaps this feeds into sort of geostrategic geo concerns, um, particularly North Korea is the only game in town at the moment, and this brings Taiwan back into play um, in a similar way that we saw um, at the inauguration of the Trump administration with the phone call. Um, and again, I think Taiwan needs to be very careful about what's happening here and whether or not the U.S. is, is putting a squeeze on China uh, to put a squeeze on North Korea, uh, if, you, if you see what I mean, uh, through this kind of um, uh, passing of this kind of act. I'm not quite sure about the timeline on that. But, uh, you, you know, again, it's it's a, we don't want a situation where Taiwan becomes a pawn in this, this greater game and, and whatever uh, port visits may or may not occur, that the fallout for that, there will be a response from China if that does happen. I don't expect it to be an invasion. Um, but you might see uh, some other diplomatic um, actions taken by China as a response. The port call, I think, got whipped up pretty heavily in the media this week with the comments from the Chinese uh, number two diplomat in Washington. But I think, for me at least, there's still a lot of questions about how that would actually happen. Um, and I alluded to this previously, or earlier rather, but... You know, the United States will have to explore with Taiwan which ports could hold a U.S. vessel. Um, are the ports owned by the city government, for instance, in Kaohsiung or Geelong or Hualien? Or are they owned by M&D? Um, what ships could the U.S. actually dock at these ports? Would it be a bigger destroyer or a smaller surface vessel? Um, and then finally, things like logistics. So to my knowledge, Kaohsiung is one of the places that's often talked about for a port visit. But the problem there is that... That, uh, there's not adequate sewage removal facilities. So if you want to actually have a U.S. vessel dock up in Kaohsiung, you need to be able to account for all the needs of the sailors that are on that Navy ship. Right. Well, will they come or won't they come? That's a question to be decided by the people in power. But what is happening this weekend here in Taiwan, and it's been organised by the people not in power, are several anti-air pollution rallies set to take place in Taichung and Kaohsiung, two cities, of course, that have borne the brunt of Taiwan's air pollution woes for much of this year. Now, organisers say the events are aimed at highlighting the government's lack of determination to deal with air pollution outside of the capital. And they've even been fresh calls for government agencies to move to either Taichung or Kaohsiung so civil servants can quite literally get a taste of just how bad the air pollution is in the cities. Now the rallies are being backed by lawmakers from across party lines and of course they come after the cabinet announced a series of amendments to the Air Pollution Control Act, a policy that's being dubbed the 14 plus N strategy and of course it involves 14 measures which are aimed at cutting air quality index red alerts right down to below 2015 levels. That's not bad. So, more rallies, more air pollution, David. When is this going to end? Um, it will end when the air gets clean, um, and that might take uh, a little while. Uh, you know, I think that these protests are an effort to sort of make a, an issue which has been um, confined to an extent to Taichung and Kaohsiung uh, a national issue. Um, I'm not quite sure why they're not holding protests in Taipei as well, because living here... I think it's been apparent to me in, in the few years that I've been here that the pollution is getting worse and it's also a concern for people that, that I speak to here. Um, on the P Pollution Control Act changes, I, I'm not sure how much difference they're actually going to make because burning coal is the main culprit here. And obviously the government has its plan to uh, to raise a proportion of renewables to 20% by 2025 um, and phasing out coal to an extent. 
in Taichung at the moment, actually, the, the city government has put to Thai Power that it reduces its coal burning by 24%, and Thai Power is stalling on whether or not to follow through with that. Having spoken to some of the protest organisers, they say that this is an opportunity for the Ministry of Economic Affairs to show its clout and step in and say to Thai Power, look, you really need to take action on this. Um, uh, more broadly speaking, those energy targets, um, speaking to energy um, lawyers, actually, still there is some doubt as to, well, quite a lot of doubt as to how, what the mechanism will be for Taiwan to achieve those renewable targets. So there's a lot of sides to this issue. Um, but I, I think it will command government attention. There is a press conference in Taipei today as well, um, being organised by a KMT legislator. Um, in the same way, having lived in Beijing, these issues uh, affect everybody. So they're, they're a, a real way that um, people can squeeze the government for change because they, they cross uh, cut across uh, society. Um, and also, if we're looking, casting back to sort of history in Taiwan, changes to the waste management situation in the early 90s were a result of popular protests. So, you know, having a vibrant democracy also means that you can get out on the street and protest things that you disagree with. Um, and, and we'll see whether or not the government responds to the request that they move their headquarters south. Uh, David mentioned the KMT are holding a press conference. And of course, Taijong Mayor Lin Jialong is in the DPP, has been very vocal about getting people out to these protests. So this pollution worries are becoming a bit of a political football in both Taijong and Kaohsiung ahead of the upcoming elections next year. Right, I think, and that's something that's going to be really interesting to watch because both parties are really staking their claim in the game. Um, also, Wu Dengyi, the KMT chairman, was another KMT voice this week that, that spoke out in calling for people to get uh, active in these protests this weekend. But I think as we look towards the local level elections, what we should be watching is kind of how these other cities are starting to implement policies at their level um, and how that could then shape the elections, how the votes are cast next year. Kaohsiung, I mean, already has this great, you know, they have free public transportation. There was a rule, I think, that was passed this week or last week about sporting events and outdoor activities at schools when the pollution is too high, obviously prohibiting it uh, if it gets above a certain threshold. And so I think what could happen at the local level, how Taichung, you know, reshapes how it thinks about public transportation as they continue to build more MRT lines, um, if there are other laws and things that are enacted, that could be really meaningful in terms of the impact that it'll have on next year's local elections. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the first popularly elected lawmaker to face a recall vote does so tomorrow, December 16, when voters from New Taipei's 12th district cast their ballots to see if new power party lawmaker Huang Guozhang should stay or should he go. Now, the recall was initiated by the Greater Taipei Stability Power Alliance, which is, for all intents and purposes, an anti-gay marriage group. Now, Huang supports gay marriage, and he's been very vocal in pushing the government to introduce legislation to legalise it. Now, although this is the case, the alliance sadly has moved, says it has moved to recall Huang because he isn't representing his constituency properly in the legislative UN and is pursuing his own personal goals. Now, the alliance in recent weeks has also made statements falsely claiming that the new power party supports the legalisation of drugs and that Huang himself engaged in vote buying. So, David, this is a very messy recall vote with questions about the group that's doing the recall motion, which of course 
has started to raise questions about Huang himself and what he's doing in the legislative UN. Well, I feel quite sorry for him, really, um, from the perspective that he, if he's outspoken, you know, what, what politician isn't? Um, and his platform is, has been no different to that which he campaigned on. So the allegation that he's somehow misrepresented himself, I think, is, is false. Um, as you said, uh, it does seem like the electorate is being held hostage um, by Stability Power Alliance, um, which is a kind of conservative Christian group. And their main agenda here is opposition to, to the same-sex marriage um, position and the changes in, that were enacted in May, or not yet enacted, but the, the change to the civil code. Um, so yeah, as I said, I feel really sorry for him. I, I, you know, I hope I hope that he uh, he actually manages to pull through. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll see. I mean, again, we were speaking earlier about special interest groups here getting hold of of a of an, an electorate, and I think uh, Michael J. Cole has written about the fact that a lot of the playbook here uh, is coming out of um, uh, the United States and some evangelical church groups in the, in the United States. So. Uh, I, I, I'm not too sure about about that as to the funding and the methodology, but it certainly worked because they've they've managed to to command this one tenth of the electorate that they need. They actually had a poll, the Stability Group, Power Alliance Group, this week that said, was it this week or last week? I can't. Remember. It was it was a poll recently. That's how much I think about this group. I can't remember when the poll was. And they came out of the poll that said it, it was evenly split according to their poll. It was like 36 percent said he was okay and about 34% said he wasn't okay, referring to Huang. They also came out in the poll and said, most of the constituency don't know he's their lawmaker. So, you know, whether you trust this polling, I think, is 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 a question in and of itself. Um, but I think, so, but can I put this back in the context of the recall law, actually, because I find it to be really ironic um, that the New Power Party came into, came into office and actually wanted to have a recall law. They wanted to lower the threshold for recalls to happen, and they got that through last December. So this is actually a really interesting test um, for for their own law, the law that they themselves championed. And, and I do feel a little sorry for Huang um, in that regard, as he could be their first fall guy. But... With the new law, they're actually allowed to advertise and to get out the vote and get the support. Um, so now maybe Huang, as a result of all of this this mess, really, that it's become, and the opposition from these um, these groups that oppo- oppose same-sex marriage, maybe what is really going to happen is Huang is going to become known, but as a result of this really unfortunate circumstance. So it's kind of this vicious cycle as I see it. Um, of course, there's been some controversy about the, the actual going out and being able to sort of stump, drum up support for it. There was an alle- allegations of some rather dubious phone calls to certain people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, <clears throat> and that's always going to be the challenge, I think, in Taiwan and in other democracies is, you know, how do you make sure that gaining support is it's clean support? It's it's correctly earned support, ethically earned support, not vote buying, not vote influencing, and so forth. And so I think going forward, you know, with the recall scheduled for tomorrow, um, we're just going to have to wait and see, right? Because if Huang is recalled, then who fills his shoes, right? Is it a seat for a KMT legislator? um, Or is it a seat for somebody else? I think that's going to be a very interesting question to watch. Mm. In case you're interested, the new Taipei City's 12th electoral district has a total of two. 151,000 eligible voters who can cast their ballots on Saturday. Now to be unseated, 62,000 of those need to vote against him. Um, yeah, and I think that there is there's some other issues they might be voting on as well. 
including his um, support for pension act reform. So the, the, the coalition against him is very opportunistic. Um, it's an alliance of convenience, really, to, to get him out. And as I, as I said before, uh, and as Lauren said, you know, this change in the law that allowed this kind of recall vote, we're going to have to see how it's put into practice and what happens. Um, it, it's actually quite it's quite exciting in a way to be part of these kind of changes to, to a, again, a vibrant democracy. Same sort of thing that we saw with the Refer Referendum Act. How is it going to be put into practice? What's going to happen next? Uh, again, we'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. There'll be another vote um, with two new candidates standing. And it could go wrong. Brexit! <laughs> um, well, you know... Can you compare these two sorts of <laughs> democracies? You said earlier that you have to you know, make sure that people are, are sort of subject to this, the kind of clean lobbying, which, are, you know, I'm not really sure that there is such a thing. So, yeah. I mean, it's another good test for democracy. But lobbying is lobbying. Yeah. Sleazy people. Yeah. That was a yes from both of the guests here. Anyway, we'll move on from that point before I put my foot in it completely. Now, Reporters Without Borders President Pierre Haskey was in Taiwan earlier this week where he gave a lecture at the Taipei Salon, which was organised by the Longying Thai Cultural Foundation. And Haskey warned of the dangers faced by Taiwan's mainstream media amid concerns that it's being controlled by China-backed companies with a political agenda. And I spoke with Cedric Alviani, the director of Reporters Without Borders, Taipei pay bureau about Haskey's comments. So it, it is obvious that China has an agenda to try and impact on the Taiwanese media. Of course, China cannot do it directly. There's a regulation that uh, prevents from uh, Chinese companies uh, from directly buying Taiwanese media. However, there's uh, big economical links between the Taiwanese media and um, uh, Chinese companies, and this, uh, this, this leads to some interferences. For example, in the domain of uh, program sales, for example, you know that some major TV groups uh, distribute some famous TV dramas in China, and there are some pressures that uh, their TV dramas would not be distributed anymore if uh, the, the, the TV channel uh, does broadcast uh, certain programs or talk uh, openly uh, about certain political topics. So you can see that the economy is a very big lever for the Chinese authorities to pressure on the Taiwanese media. Some of the Taiwanese media are also owned by tycoons uh, that have a lot of economic interest in mainland China. Is it mostly print media? Is it mostly television? I would say it's touching any kind of media. And the bigger the media, the easier it is for the Chinese authorities to pressure. So what I believe uh, Pierre Aski was saying during the conference last day is that there is a new generation of media which are lighter, which are less dependent on uh, the economy. They are online media. And actually, Taiwan does have some online media, like store media, like the Newslands, that are <clears throat> bringing somehow some contribution to the free press that uh, should be appreciated. It is also the case in Hong Kong, where uh, a lot of new media have flourished uh, after the Chinese authorities have been openly trying to interfere with the Hong Kong press freedom. Right. Do you think the Thai administration is aware of this, and what do you think it could do to stop it? Oh, I believe the Thai administration is uh, well aware 
of this, of course, because it's an obvious problem. Uh, what they what they could do, I believe, uh, the Thai administration could uh, give more power to the public media. I do not mean control the public media or turn them into state media. I, I mean give them more resources so that the public media could contribute better to the uh, civil discussions, to the civic debate in Taiwan. So, David, you work for one of these groups that Cedric was talking about, the new media. Um, yes, uh, founded in 2013 um, and has grown very rapidly since then. I think because there was a demand for uh, media that sort of sat in the middle. Previously, the media environment was extremely polarised between, uh, obviously, between KMT and DPP camps and pro-unification and independence camps. Um Online media has provided an outlet for um, particularly millennial um, uh, members of the electorate to sort of share their views and hear a diversity of opinions. Um, I think Cedric also said um, that uh, funding for public media, which is, is often provides that role, certainly provides that role in the UK with the BBC, and also around the region with NHK in, 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 in Japan and, and also similar nas- well-funded national broadcasters in, in South Korea. Um, I think since it was established, the um, national broadcaster, uh, TV broadcaster in Taiwan has had its funding um, held stagnant uh, for for at least a decade, um, possibly two, which is, um, you know, pretty horrific if you're in control of that organization when you're competing with such well-funded um, rivals. Um, and I think that actually the government is, is, is addressing these issues and it's set to come to table in uh, February, I think the February session of, of the Parliament, uh, where changes to the uh, the Broadcast Act, various different acts surrounding media are are to be um, debated, uh, and also on the table is um, unifying the various different public um, uh, medias, the radio, TV, and CNA into a kind of joint organisation which can better compete and provide that kind of balanced view that I, I think certainly Taiwan definitely needs. So I think that there is a really interesting equation, a balance within this balance, right? Because you want to unite all of the media forces together in Taiwan to provide this balanced view, but you want to do it in a way that, one, Taiwan is not vulnerable to external influence, specifically from China in the media, um, and two, in a way that gives voice to all of the varied colors <laughs> across the spectrum here in Taiwan. Um, and so I think, you know, like Cedric, I think this is a really uh, important issue to watch going forward, because they're already are very loud voices in the media um, that that the, the newspapers themselves that do have a, a stance one way or another that do filter and, and don't publish things that could offend China because their owners have business interests on the mainland. Um, you know, there are papers that do publish very pro-Taiwan independence type op-eds. And so finding that balance, allowing those colors and those opinions to coexist um, without restricting the media is 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 really i think going to be the big question in these february debates that you noted right and before we go this evening folks here in taipei were spacing out last sunday at an event organized to promote a stress-free lifestyle now the spaced out day was the creation of south korean visual artist whoops young and that's his real name apparently i didn't make that up anyway it encourages members of the public to stare off into space without talking sleeping eating or using any electronic devices now the competition has been held in different countries each year since 2012 and of course this year this year rather was 
Taiwan's turn to host. The rules are simple. Competitors must not talk, sleep, laugh or use their mobile phones for 80 minutes. And contestants received a yellow card for their first penalty and a red card and they were off for their second penalty. And they were voted for by an audience of contestants who just thought, I'll pick the person who looks like the best at spacing out. So, David, could you live without your mobile phone for 80 minutes? Uh, certainly. Uh, I try to do so often. Um, you know, I, I love this idea because it sort of brings meditation into the competitive sphere, which I think is something that's needed, been needed for some time. Um, but, you know, walking around in Taipei, I think people don't really um, need to be sitting down to space out. Most of them are spaced out, walking around, staring at their mobile phones already. So, yeah, definitely necessary. Do you need to organize an event for it? Um, you know, the organizers obviously think so. I mean, I think it's a great initiative to really encourage people to stop looking at technology for a bit and appreciate life's simple pleasures around us, right? I, <laughs> I personally could use to unplug from my tablet or my phone a little more often. Um, and from my understanding, they held it in like a very hustling, bustling place on Sunday in Taipei. And so if you can get a group of however many people were there to sit down and be quiet and still um, for, for that amount of time, yeah, sure, it's a great thing. Wasn't so good for Taiwan, though, was it? Because, of course, the Taipei event was actually won by a guy called Jan Kai Ho. He's a 24-year-old student from Hong Kong. So I guess losing on home field means that people in Taiwan do need to space out a bit more. Well, yep, precisely. This is a catastrophic um, national defeat for Taiwan. Um, and I, I think, obviously, we need to try a lot harder and we should be encouraging people wherever we can to uh, to take more time out. How about, them? How about the city government takes radical action and sort of makes sure you cannot get any reception on your mobile phone on the MRT? I'd be all for that. In Washington, where I live, you can't get much reception. So it'd be a positive step in my book. It's the same in London, and I'm sure um, they, they haven't done that because it's technically impossible. <laughs> So, yeah, I agree. Right, and there we must leave the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by David Green. Uh, good night. And Lauren Dickey. Thanks again for having me, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.